Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. I'm your host, Diane Giz, and today I'm joined by somebody who I really, really, really look look up to, and I'm so excited to introduce you to. It's Blair Inns. And if you haven't read this book, this is going to be, one, it's just so nice that it's in Mrs. Eve's uh, the typeface. And I think that it's so geeky that I know that, but I used to set all my student work, like my project sheets in Mrs. Eve. So it's just so beautiful to read, but I have so many questions. So we're going to jump right in, but I'm going to start off But today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30 day free trial at audibletrial.com slash design recharge. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from, from on your phone, your Android whatever, Kindle, and Blair's book is going to be on there next week, he said, right? Yes, I said next week. I End of next week, yes. So, <laughs> Maybe a couple days after next week, but yes, it's finally so, coming to Audible. Or did you read it? No, somebody better than me <clears throat> read it. You have a great voice, though. Thank you, and I, I always thought I would read it. I, was, I kind of thought I would do it for the 10th anniversary edition, and I say this in the author's introduction to the audio edition, my director of coaching, Shannon Lee, um, about a year ago, took up a hobby of hers, something she's always wanted to do, which was voice acting. And as soon as she said that, I asked her if she would voice the manifesto because I'd say, I, I'd explain why in the audio edition. Um, she's the only person on the planet that I would hand this over to. Oh, well, cool. Well, I'm excited you've given her an opportunity. I think that's great. And it's really about focus. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. So I think that's really neat that you gave her an opportunity of something that she wanted to focus on. Jeremy Slagle says he loves your work. And I just spit all over my screen because Jeremy's last name is like a spitting word. So, <laughs> Jeremy's in Ohio, right, Jeremy? Anyway, um, so we are going to dig in and this is just so you guys know, I'll put a link in the bottom, but, um, it's the win without pitching manifesto. So, um, Blair, give them a little bit of background about what you were doing and how you kind of got into working with so many creatives. Like what were you were doing before you started writing this book? Yeah. I, so I grew up professionally in the advertising profession <clears throat> and on the account services side. And at a very young age, in my first job, I was 22 and my, um, the guy I was working for said, hey, you seem to be uh, fearless. I'm going to put you in charge of new business. And I barely knew anything about advertising, let alone new business. And I, I was okay at it, I wasn't great at it. Eventually I worked, ended up working for some large uh, multinational ad agencies. And, um, and then my career moved into more into the design world. I ended up working for a firm that was both an ad agency and a design firm, and then just more pure design. Um, and I live in a, uh, well, maybe we'll talk about this. I live in a little village in the middle of nowhere. And the, the me launching uh, my, what was then a solo consulting practice, which was called Win Without, Win Without Pitching, in 2002 that was driven by my own personal <clears throat> desire to live in this little village where I live so my wife and I have four kids they're all the youngest is 17 now he's a, a junior in high school um, but we moved to this little village to raise kids and I thought I needed a way to earn a living so I decided to launch this solo consulting practice I called it win without pitching I'd realized that um, uh, nobody does new business well um, there, I was taught to do it the way everybody's always done it before me. 
which is you make a bunch of calls, you get your kind of, you, uh, you get a, you get a meeting, then you pitch something and you ask for a little project and you get your foot in the door. You try to widen it. You, you hand all the power over to the, to the buyer, the client in the buy sell relationship. And that's how I was raised too. And then one day, fast forward a bunch of years, I just kind of got fed up and I thought I was just, just personally sick of not, not having any power in the relationship of just being seen as a vendor. So I started to push back and I've forgotten your original question now, but no, no. So, so that's you, what I was doing. And, and I, I became a consultant um, because I wanted to live in this beautiful little village in the middle of nowhere in remote British Columbia, where a short nine hour drive from Vancouver. Oh, wow. Um, so that was the impetus to start a consulting practice. And I wrote, so that was 2002. I wrote the book in 2010 and in 2013, I began the transition from a consulting practice to a training company, and that's where we are today. So we're uh, we have dedicated coaches and staff, et cetera. So. Okay, so but this had to come out of something that you saw as a need, one that you had yeah. seen. This this wasn't necessarily working for you, was it? What was, was it that it wasn't working for you and your inner gut that this was just, oh, I'm doing it the way everybody else is doing it and it just doesn't feel right. And it was a position of not power. It was giving all the power. But how did you come, because I think that's why this is so revolutionary. And you even say like, if, if you will take up the sword and maybe you didn't say the sword, but it was like, well, you join the revolution. And I really think, but it's a way for us and the clients to both win. It's not that we're just going to you know, charge them more and make more money. It's that there is more value going to come to them and to us. So yeah. was there, how did you like, it's just a gut feeling. Did you always trust your gut? Um, so I kind of, I kind of got fed up and I remember the moment when, <clears throat> so I was running a regional office for a firm that was based in another market and the president of the agency he was out in my market and we were doing some new business meetings and we had what a, a, biz, a meeting that I was really optimistic about. So he and I go into this meeting and the clients were doing the like credentials thing and the client says, okay, you guys look great. We've got this project. The next step is I'd like you to come back with some ideas, <clears throat> like some free, some concepts. And it was a design. I don't remember the project. I remember it was a design project, but come back with some concepts. And I was kind of at the end of my rope. I was kind of fed up with hearing that. Um, start doing the work for free. So in that moment, I had a great boss. He gave me a lot of latitude. In that moment, I said, uh, we never pitch. And I said that at the same time, my boss, the president of the agency said, okay. So we both said, and we kind of looked at each other. And I don't remember what happened after that. We kind of got out of the meeting and, and we went back to the office. And he said, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm perfectly fine with, with that approach that you just took. I just, I would have liked to have known. <laughs> so I kind of, it wasn't a plan. I was just fed up in the moment. And I, and so out of that was this idea that I, I knew I was tired of doing it the old way of having no power being treated like a vendor, because I really felt like I worked for a great firm. The creative was world-class. And I really believed in my heart that we, we could help people's businesses. Um, and it really felt like they, they, 
not only was it about me being made to feel like a vendor, I just felt like you, you people don't understand. Like we, we could have this great impact on your business. And I really felt like we weren't like everybody else. And I know a lot of people feel that way, but I just, just felt like it wasn't fair to us. It wasn't fair to the client. I didn't know what to do from there, but that was kind of the beginning. And at about the same time, my boss called me one day and he said, I signed you up for a sales training program. I hope you don't mind. Um, and uh, because he'd signed up other people in the firm in, in, the, in headquarters, in the main office. And I said, no, that's great. I've never had any. And so I went through this three-day sales training program and I was just struck by the logic. I, most of us, we don't even call it sales in the creative world, right? We call it new business or new business development. And it's because we are uncomfortable with the S word. So I decided at some point when I launched this consulting practice, I was going to take back the S word. I was going to make it a noble thing again. Because we think it's the dirty act of talking people into things, and it really isn't. So I remember being in the sales training program, learning you know, how to do this properly. And this woman, she, she had a model for how to sell. And she, based, she said something that was earth shattering to me. She said, if you're looking for the scientific model for how people buy, it's how they change. So you can study any model of change management and, and, and you, see, you, you will see that selling is the facilitation of change. And that changed everything. And in the first few years of my consulting practice, this woman was kind of my silent partner. I licensed some IP from her and I worked with her for years. Her name was Pauline O'Malley and she was transformational. So she taught me how to sell. And I realized that I had these skills that in the agency world, they were absolutely missing. Um, now, there's some parts of the sales world that I think there's a lot of cliches in kind of traditional selling. Um, and I think one of the things that we do in Win Without Pitching, and I, it was my point of view when I was a consultant and we teach this in our training program, is like we're, we're not very good at teaching people who see themselves this is a bit of a generalization, but who see themselves as like, who, as salespeople. Like, I think what I know, it's not that I'm an expert in selling. What I know is I know creative people. And mm -hmm. I know the peculiarities of the creative mindset and personality that makes selling difficult. Mm -hmm. So I love to, I just love creative people. I, and I, I believe they're put on this earth to create. So they're they built this business around their calling. And I really believe it's this calling. And I really believe that my calling is to help these people in these, their most vulnerable moments where they've decided they wanted to make their calling their business and they're standing in front of a prospective client and they're thinking they're nervous and they're vulnerable. They're thinking, ah, I'm unsure of the business part of it. I'm, like, I'm uncomfortable selling. This feels a little bit sleazy to me. It's right. when I'm selling is highly personable. Therefore, I'm very vulnerable. I just like, I feel like I'm professionally, I'm here to help that person in that moment. I forget your question. And no, that's I just perfect. got back from two weeks of vacation. So I apologize <laughs> for my rambling. This is just answer. normal conversation with me. So that's what it's like. So it's, you're going, you're doing great. So keep going. But I have, I do. So as a result from being in the business and so you found Caslo, the place where you live, yeah. Before you decided to do, be a consultant, I think you already had it in your heart that you were supposed to help creatives. Like, when did it come that you guys were moving? As oh, a it took me three years to talk my wife into it. In fact, I kind of, I had a sneaky plan. <clears throat> I was working for a large ad agency and I engineered my, my own dismissal. Um, 
And after that happened, and it was a huge relief because um, I worked for somebody who wasn't a very good person. It was, a, it was a very unhealthy environment, but I'm really glad that I went through it now. Um, and then after I was fired, my wife said, you know, why don't we move to Kaslaw? And I, so that way I thought, okay, goal reach. And then it was like, well, how are we going to earn a living? And um, I thought I would build furniture, but I'm horrible with tools. I mean, I own all of the tools. I just don't know how to use them. <laughs> I thought I would build furniture or I thought I would buy the fly fishing shop. Mm. Um, and then, so we put our house up for sale. And it, the day it sold, we thought, okay, we'll move to Castle. We'll figure it out. The day it sold, we'd found out that we were pregnant with child number three. Oh, wow. And I was in the garage trying to figure out how to build furniture. So, and I got so, a call from a headhunter. Oh, and really? Okay. And so I took this call in front of my wife and I said, no, I'm not interested. And she gave me a look like, no, you take this meeting. <laughs> so I changed my tone and I took the meeting. And she said, like, let's just have this child before we, mm. before we end up moving to Caso. So <clears throat> ended up, the guy that I was in the meeting with where I, I said, we never pitch. And he said, okay. I ended up going to work for him. I said, I'll work for you for a year. Then I'm moving to this little village in the middle of nowhere. A year turned into 20 months. I'd had, my previous experience was not a very healthy experience. I really wanted to get out of the business. Mm -hmm. Then I went to work for this wonderful guy and it just, I fell in love with the business again, all over again. So 12 months turned into 20 months. And finally I said, listen, I've, I've got to go. We've got this dream. I want to, um, <clears throat> I want to live in this place, raise my kids there. And he said, okay, well, what are you going to do for a living? And I said, I have this vague idea of a consulting practice. And he said, do you want to sell for me while you, while you get your consulting practice off the ground? So I, I did for a year. So I lived in Caslo. I wrote what was my first book that I never talk about because it was self-published. I sold it for $1,000 a copy. But I, as a consultant, I thought I need to codify everything that I know about this. So I wrote it all out and I thought, well, here's a book. I should sell it. So I put it on my website and I sold it for $1,000 a copy. Um, and that, you know, we'll come to talk about Pricing Creativity, my latest book, which sells for hundreds of dollars a copy. And that's how I knew you can sell a book for hundreds or even thousands of dollars a copy. And so, so we moved to Caslo. I wrote that book. I sold for him remotely kind of part-time while I, I got the consulting practice off the ground. And once again, I've forgotten your question, but I'm no, enjoying no, that was, that was good. So <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry about it. We're just going to keep going. You're answering lots of questions. So I'm going to ask you a question about you as a kid. Uh, or first, were your parents, I know this hopefully won't be questions that you've answered before on podcasts, but were your parents entrepreneurs? Uh, my father was an RCMP officer and my mother was a nurse. So my dad was a cop. Oh, okay. Um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He was a Mountie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he always had an entrepreneurial streak. He started a, a second business uh, when I was kind of a teen, young teenager and he built that and then sold it. Um, so he was always, he was a bit of an, it was, he's still alive. He's still with us. He, but he was an inventor and an entrepreneur at heart. So I really caught that bug from him. But um, then you also seem like you have the confidence, like you can make this happen. So was life, um, did you, did things come easy to you or did you have to struggle and you made it? 
I know this answer because we talked about this a little bit about your college gate. I'll give you an answer I've never given anybody else before. So I'm 52 for my 50th birthday. A friend of mine bought, bought me a reading with an astrologer, oh, which yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed. <laughs> and she said to me, um, do you have any questions or is there anything, is there anything you want to know or get answers to? And I said, uh, yeah, I said, uh, why is life so easy for me? I said, I feel like I'm on vacation. <clears throat> like if, if we live multiple lives and I'm, I'm, op- I'm not sure I believe it, but I'm absolutely open to that. And if you're talking to an astrologer, your conversation's probably going to be there. I said, I, part of me feels like it's like I'm on vacation. And I won't share the answer as a deeply personal answer that I, I really liked. But um, now I, I think, I don't know that my life is, well, like I'm born a white male in North America. I launched my business at a time when I had a, I'm in Canada. I had a massive currency advantage. The high, selling into the U.S., I would get $1.50 for every dollar I sold. I had a massive currency advantage at a time when the internet was relatively new, when I had very few competitors. Like I just, so I have been extremely fortunate, absolutely extremely fortunate. Um, I still work hard. I still talk, take lots of risk. But if you would ask me, do I struggle? Um, How about as a kid? Did you struggle or did you like, it, I mean. No, I, like, I have the, I struggled in school. I was never a good student, but I mean. But like with I probably friends. have the confidence of three people. I have way, okay. I have way too much, I have way more confidence than I deserve. But you're not cocky. I mean, at least I doesn't come across that way. Well, well let's me. see how long this talk goes. <laughs> But so, so, but confidence is different than cockiness. But so I also think your heart comes out because you really do want to help people. But I also think what I love and what I think a lot of creatives have problems with is charging for something that they love to do and that we're, we're called to do. And I think that you already kind of talked about that. So this is my first question that's not related to your personal life here. So why is confidence and value, self-value so hard for people um, so why is that so hard for, and there's the second part. So for creatives, maybe. Yeah. Well, the answer is, um, when you're selling the contents of your head, especially your ideas and you're like, as they manifest in the form in creations, it's very personal. So when you're, when you're rejected, mm. when people don't want to buy what you're selling or they don't want to pay what you're asking, the rejection, it's very easy for the rejection to be personal. Mm. Um, so that's really hard. Um, it's just, you're, it's a very vulnerable situation for a creator to sell their creations. And I, so you talk about courage, you talk about bravery. The bravest people, the most courageous, I guess it's the same thing, but the most courageous people I know are friends of mine who are artists. Mm. And their courage is just constantly putting themselves out there as artists. Um, And I just, I admire people who do that so much, but I see how they look fearless and they're not fearless. And the difference, like uh, Dan Sullivan, the founder of Strategic Coach, a coaching program for entrepreneurs, he's got this great line. Fear is, fear is wetting your pants. Courage is taking action in wet pants. (laughs) Right. And so it takes a lot of courage and, and bravery to be to be an artist at any level and then when you stand up and you start you you ask to be paid for it you introduce a whole other level of potential rejection 
So the people who are most successful at selling in the creative space, they're either not creative. It's not, they don't take it personal because it's not them doing the work. Mm-hmm. I think the most successful owners of creative businesses are people who aren't creative. They're the business partner to a creative person. And there are lots of exceptions to that. Um, but the creative people are the ones who are just really, they're not only brave, they were born with an advantage and mm. that it's a self-esteem. Like I think, you know, my, the source of my confidence is like, it's either genes, it's nature or nurture, but I got both. Mm. Right. My parents kept telling me how great I was. I mean, against, you know, all the evidence, um, they kept telling me how, how great I was. And I, and I, uh, I believed it and probably took it to the next level. And I don't know when I started to learn some humility, but I was pretty old. Um, and I still have a lot, to, a long way to go. So, so I love, one of the things that I've gotten that's kind of pulled out of what I hear, but you, as far as I am in the book, I haven't gotten to this part. So if you're Say, but I think you're talking about it already without using the word, but it's really collaboration. Just what you said, you had somebody else was selling your stuff. So there's a key to somebody else. So I think that our networks are really, really important. And I think having a network of people and you really talk in the book about focus and about having something that you're an expert at. So this is a big thing. I know you've answered this question tons of times, but if you could answer it one more time, we fight this. And I think we fight it out of desperation a lot of times, especially as we are new business owners. We, we want to pay the light bill. We want to have food on the table. So we almost do anything. And because we do that, I say we're like Walmart we do everything and we don't do anything really, really well, but it's really a struggle for a lot of creatives, a lot of designers to say, I am going to do this because you think like you've said in the book, you think that you're going to go through the store and it's the end. It is a really small, dark, cold hallway and no, nothing's in there, but really you want to tell them what they really get when they open that door. Yeah. So the metaphor is you're standing in a room full of doors and being a curious, creative problem solver, you want to walk behind, you want to know what's behind every door. So you, you structure a business that allows to walk you, allows you to walk uh, through any door and essentially do anything for anybody. And I'm standing over your shoulder saying, nope, pick a door, pick one door and walk through it. And as you point out, you like the fear is, well, I'll, I'm going to die of boredom on well, like whatever's on the other side of one door. And that's not what you encounter. What you encounter is just more doors, not more door, more <laughs> doors, more doors than you can ever imagine. So it's like you crawl into a, into a crack, a, a crevice or a niche, and you think it's like a closet or something, but it opens up like Narnia. Mm. You, once you specialize, you start to see this, how big that area of specialism is. Um, now you have to be careful. So people who are listening, who are fairly new at this, your career should look, I'm doing this the right way. It should look like this. Mm. Basically you should be, you should be doing all kinds of, if I do it this way in the, at the top, at the beginning, you're doing all kinds of different things. You're trying different things. And as time goes by, then you specialize. And I don't, I don't know that it, 
I mean, you could specialize right out of the gate, but you really should spend the first few years of your design or creative profession learning as much as you can about different disciplines and different mm -hmm. sectors, et cetera. But you should also be keeping your eyes open for areas in which to specialize. And then once you specialize, you don't have to specialize. If you're comfortable selling, you don't have to specialize. Being a, being a, you can be, run a small generalist firm. You just have to be comfortable with the fact that selling is going to be more difficult for you. Mm. If you're uncomfortable selling and you want to find a way to build a business that supports you and makes it easier for you to sell, then you really need to specialize. Plus, you know, I really think at the end of the, your career, you want to look back and you want to have a sense of, of knowing something, of having expertise. I remember being in the advertising and design profession for, I think my career was about 10, 10 years or so. But I remember near the end of it, thinking, I don't, I feel like I don't know anything. I know how to like write a marketing plan. I need know how to put together a deck and do a presentation. I know how to buy somebody lunch. Um, but I looked at my friends who were like carpenters or accountants or whatever. And I thought, man, they, they actually know something. And that's the challenge when you, as a life, as a, as a generalist, you just never go deep. The goal of specializing, you're trying to set yourself apart from your competitors and the goal isn't to go narrow. The goal is to go as deep as possible. And how you, because the only meaningful differentiator is the depth of your expertise. So how do you go deep? Right. You narrow your focus. Okay, so this was, I wrote this down as I'm reading it on this scratch piece of paper and it said, oh, wow. Because I'm, you know, in the very beginning you say this book is for um, creative firms. You know, it's for people who are, the people uh, who see. see. So their enterprise may sustain their creativity. But really you're talking about these businesses and people looking at their business. And I don't think students are like that, but I'm a college professor. So I'm thinking, okay, well, should I, you know, I feel this kind of from industry. I hear it all the time as specialized, specialized, specialized. And then I'm like, am I doing them a disservice by teaching them more, a lot about a or a little about a lot of part of the design. So I was like, oh, should I get my students to focus in school? Or should they learn about and do all types of design? Is there ever, is it ever too early to focus? So you kind of have yes. answered that. So you're saying somebody should figure out what they like and what they're, what they're good at, maybe? There's, so there's two levels of success in business. Mm -hmm. And the tools that get you to the first level, not only don't get you to the second level, they get in the way. So the first level of success, and you can define that for yourselves, but what I would say it's like validation. You're getting paid. You validated that you have something that's the, the market finds worthwhile. People are paying you to do what it is that you do. And you're earning, you're earning a living beyond a job, beyond what you would get as a, as a salary. So, or let's say you're earning the equivalent of a good salary and freedom or a little bit beyond that. Let's call that the first level of success. The way you get there is through two things. Number one, hard work. Number two, you say yes to everything. And my advice to young people is always, you just, you say yes, to work hard, say yes to everything. Somebody comes to you with an opportunity. Hey, do you want to do this? Yeah. I've never done that before. Yeah. Love to. So you're gaining experience, you're learning the importance of working hard, and you're, you're, because you're essentially getting paid for your effort. 
right. the first level of success. The second level of success, you need to replace those two tools of hard work and saying yes to everything with two, two other tools. And the first tool is you start saying no, you become selective. This is where it makes it important to focus. And Warren Buffett has this great line. And if you don't know who Warren Buffett is, he's the, one of the richest people on the planet and a very intelligent investor. He's not just rich, he's very smart. Mm -hmm. He says, the difference between successful people and really successful people is really successful people say no to almost everything. So you replace saying yes with saying no, with being selective. And then you replace hard work or effort with risk mm. because Peter Drucker, who's written 60 books on, on managing, he's essentially the godfather of management consulting and he's one of the most quotable people to ever have lived. And I, I quote him almost every day and almost every day I quote my favorite quote, which is this. Peter Drucker said, in business, all profit comes from risk. Mm. So your salary, what you earn as a salary, is a function of your effort. And that, so you get to the first level of success by working hard and essentially getting, whether you're an employee somewhere or you're running your own business, but that will only take you so far. If you want to get to the next level where you're earning healthy profits above and beyond the salary that you pay yourself, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's no longer about hard work, it's no longer about saying yes, it's about being very selective and taking risk. So my wife is one of them, and she's my business partner. She's one of the hardest working people I know. She'll say about somebody else, look at, look at her. She works, she's very successful. She must work very hard. And I just respond like a robot. Nope, she must take a lot of risk. Hmm. So that's really the next level is putting yourself out there, seeing an opportunity, going all in on something, betting your children's financial future, whatever it is entrepreneurs are essentially all in all the time. And when I realized that I was mortified, I thought, well, am I, am I going to have to experience the level of risk that I feel in this moment? Is, is this a life sentence? And I had to think about that for a while. And then I realized, you know what? I would have it no other way. And as you get more successful, like you, you can take less risk. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if you, if you want to have financial success, you need to take risk. So, in the beginning, you're saying yes to everything, you're working really hard. And then at some point, those, the, the longer you are at that first level, the more ingrained those habits become. And the harder it is to let, mm. put, put those tools down and pick up the new tools of selectivity and risk. Do you know what I think? I think there are people who've been in business for years <clears throat> who have gotten to a certain level and they can't get past it. And they don't understand that it's no longer about hard work. Right. But you know what I think that is? I think that's a marker. I think that we see that as a signal of somebody who is successful. So, um, and I think that we are, uh, we just need to change our mindset. I think uh, the, it is maybe a, looking at it from another perspective. It's really about the risk. Um, so we had a couple questions and I think this is, I love this question. Um, first, I'm going to um, ask Verena's question unless it keeps going up and then I can't. So, this is more general, so I'm going to ask hers, and then I'm going to follow it straight with Matt's question. What are some examples of narrowing your focus? So um, can you give me like two, three examples real fast of that? Yeah, so you, you can narrow your focus. You think there's two elements of focus. There's your discipline and your market. What do you do 
Mm -hmm. and do you do it? And you can describe markets in different ways. They can be vertical markets like vertical industries, or they can be demographic markets like um, senior citizens or um, Hispanic speaking audience, et cetera, or vertical industries like automotive, et cetera. <clears throat> Discipline, the broad, you know, the broad disciplines are marketing or communications or design. You can narrow them into um, uh, UX design. So right. you get, you'll end up with a combination of, you should be able to describe your X for Y, UX design for financial might be mm -hmm. one example. Now you have to be careful. And I think I probably, I and all kinds of other people like me have been guilty over the years of just pushing narrow. Narrow, narrow is better. Narrow isn't always better. The goal is to go deep. So mm -hmm. you, you don't want to be as narrow as possible. You want to be as broad as possible while still allowing you to be position yourself as the deep, having deep expertise in an area to the extent that it sets you apart from the other, your competitors, the other options that your clients have. So there's a lot of nuance around that. But before you write a sentence and you bring your creative powers to bear to express your positioning, you should be able to do the simple exercise of X for Y, discipline for market. So we do sales training for creative professionals. And then I can describe it in different sets of language. But if you can't do X for Y, then don't bother with the tagline. Don't bother with a big long sentence you need to get it down for x for y and you think okay i want to be i want us or if it's just you just you i, I want to be seen ultimately as the leading expert or one of the leading experts in x for y and you can decide that your geographic trading area is only the city that you work in i think at some point you will see if you're a, even a somewhat ambitious person you will see that the entire world is your market and mm -hmm. you will want to you will want to carve out a career and a positioning where you are seen as a worldwide leader in X for Y. Okay, so this is Matt's question. Matt is an amazing illustrator, Matt Wood. And um, here's his question. He can do a lot of different styles. So I think I know what, how you're going to answer this. But his question is specialization. Great idea for designers. I wonder if this applies across industries to illustration. I do a lot of different things for a, a lot of different clients. So answer that one. Yeah, so let's talk about creative talent for a second because all of the all of the advice I have on positioning assumes that everybody's essentially got the same level of creative talent, which absolutely is not true. Right. <clears throat> um, more creative than somebody else is not a positioning. It's great when you have it. When somebody asks me, what do you think of our creative product? My answer is always, it's pretty good. You shouldn't win or lose business because of it. And that's a little bit meant to disarm them a little bit, just to mm -hmm. play down the importance of how good the creative is. And it's not that it's not unimportant. The quality of your creative gets you to the table for consideration. But at the end, I don't want to go too much into this. At the end, you'll be hired <clears throat> based on your ability to reassure the client. So the quality of your work gets you to the table, but you'll be hired based on your ability to communicate that you're not going to screw it up. And you don't do that until the very end. You close based on that. So when it comes to illustration, the that's a category where the quality of the creative is actually more important than almost any other category. And if you're a solo person, you can continue, you can have, you can be a talented person and you're not, if you're not trying to big, build a big business, you could just 
you could take the advice of positioning, not with a grain of salt, but you could just kind of water down the advice or the importance of it. You can just recognize that it's, if you're a really talented illustrator and you really can work in different styles, you can probably get away with being a talented illustrator who works in different styles. I think the market for illustrators ultimately defines them and it defines them based on their style. Mm-hmm. So discipline for market, there's what's sometimes known as a horizontal positioning where as an illustrator, it's just what I would, maybe I'm using somebody else's language, but it's just kind of a third way to think about positioning mm-hmm. in illustration. The obvious one is styles. Um, so it could be anime style illustration for you know, if you were that specialized, I wouldn't narrow your market. So, but he could, because he can do a lot of different kinds of styles. Yeah. If he focused in his, instead of the discipline, I'm saying discipline is like style, right? He can still do lots of maybe ones, but he's going to focus in on a market. So say he had focused in on editorial. Well, editorial right now, traditional editorial is kind of going that out. There are less and less magazines, but there are other ways people are using illustration. So it's just about, I think about maybe changing that market and who is still using illustration in, in that sort of editorial, uh, like, Hey, I need this concept um, rendered. I need this, uh, because I think that that's what he's one of Matt's strengths is, is kind of looking at reading an article and being able to visualize a concept. But that happens. It's just about, I think about changing the market. Would you agree or do you, would, what kind of advice would you give Matt because he's in this changing this? So say UXUI is not maybe always going to be around or people aren't always going to have cars, you know, their, their industries die. And so we have to kind of see where those are and then move forward. So what would you tell <laughs> Andre says, draw or die? Um, draw or die. Yeah, if I, so if I were a talented illustrator, I would back up one level and I would, so let me pose the question to Matt. Um, are you on the wrong side of the, on the, on the wrong side of this business? And what I mean by that, are, are you locked into this fee for service model where you think, okay, I'm an illustrator how I make money and how I kind of fulfill myself creatively is I, I become an illustrator for hire. Um, and if, if you weren't allowed, if we did a constraints driven exercise and I said, what if you couldn't do that? What if you weren't allowed to sell your illustrations unless they were on a product or service that you own? Cause the money is in design is really on the, buy side, not on the selling side. What I mean by that is people by design, put it on a product, make the product better. And that's, I know it's not as simple as that. It's like designing, designing the product and then they sell the product and make bucket loads of money. And there's some great examples of firms out there doing this. Um, I did a talk recently, excuse me, in Adelaide, Australia. And, um, in Adelaide's in wine country in South Australia. So there's like all, everybody's drinking. There's all these bottles of wine that all the designers are drinking beforehand. And this, so we're having a drink. I'm not, but this designer comes up to me and he said, Hey, I, I just want to say, I, I, I saw you speak here eight years ago and there's something you said, something you said changed my life. I shortly after I left your talk, I launched a gin brand and I said, really? I said, what did I say? And I kind of knew what I'd probably said. He said, he said, don't wait for the client. 
like, don't wait for a client. If you are, if you are good at what you do, why not be the client? If you, if we're good, if we want, really want to design a liquor brand, why don't we design our own liquor brand? I said, how's it going? He said, it's going great. He said, so we, it's called prohibition gin. You can look it up there in Australia. <clears throat> they now have global distribution. So with gin brand, now they're into whiskey. And he said a month ago, one block from here, I opened, I opened my own bar. He said, well, it's a gin tasting room. And I've, I've, I've got a presentation where I show all the images <clears throat> but you can look at it, Prohibition Gin, Adelaide, Australia. And he said, and so we opened a tasting room, it's going great, and I moved my design studio, eight or 12 people, to the back of the bar. So here's a great example <clears throat> of a talented designer who ran a small design firm, decided, you know what, I, I wanna, I would love to, to work on a, on a spirits brand. So he created it. Yeah. And, the impact, the fun he's having on that side of the business. And he hasn't shut down the design business. I, I don't know w which is more lucrative, but I know the, um, the alcohol brand is, is growing like crazy. And he's the idea that he's combined the two and he's put the design studio into the back of the bar. So I would say to Matt and to other illustrators, we, we, for whatever reason, we get locked into thinking that this fee for service is the only business model. Mm but it's not. And I think there, there are a lot of kind of starving illustrators out there who are talented, who have, you know, maybe they're still working through reps, maybe, you know, maybe whatever the challenges are. And if you're a talented illustrator, how come you're not in the t-shirt business or whatever else? How come you like th think beyond the fee for service business model? And it could be that you are known for, say you're doing wine, and you just are an illustrator and you do tons of different styles of illustration for different wineries and you really target wineries as your market and you do lots of different things for those, those markets, but that's maybe how you go deep. Would that be a good example maybe? Yeah. And I've worked with other uh, design firms in Adelaide actually and other Southern California, but um, Adelaide's wine country. So there are a few firms that, there, every design firm in Adelaide does wine labels and a couple of them specialize. Um, it's a bit of a commoditized market where there's only so much people will pay for wine labels. But, so right. there are ways around that. Um, but yeah, you, I mean, you, you, that could be the vertical that you pick. You could do different styles focused on all kinds of different illustration styles focused on wine or beverage. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's a pretty cool market. Or even maybe in the food industry or the... Yeah. There's right. a lot of F and B, a lot of design firms specialized in food and beverage, and it's usually brand and package design that go hand in hand. But it doesn't have to be the same style every time. It wouldn't no. want to be the same style. So that's where your strength, Matt, I think would come in. So one of the things I think it, that I alluded to, but I didn't say, I don't, because I'm like you, except I hadn't been on vacation, is that this really allows us to collaborate. It allows us to help other people. And in this market where we know other people, now I'm focusing on this. Now you have to be honest and tell people what you're focusing on so that now they see you and then you can help them. And then when they have a client that needs that, then they can send them to you because they know that you're the expert. They know that you will deliver the results for their client, which I also think is maybe one of our uh, pitfalls, I think, for designers is that we don't track our results sometimes. Mm. Um, I think maybe that's where some of our, our confidence could be 
seen, I think we would, if we saw something was successful or unsuccessful, we would pivot and adjust so that our client would be more and more successful. Um, <laughs> Matt says now, hmm, I'm now wondering what product would benefit from my from containing lots of styles. New way of thinking. He said, appreciate it. So, um, all right. So I have a couple more questions that, um, and I know maybe some have come in that are in here, but um, I think that one of the things of the very beginning, you said something that I wrote this, we will push them to use the others uh, because our value might be too much for our business. So uh, too much for their business. So one of the problems is that we devalue ourselves because a client, this is about the power struggle, the communication. And I just want to touch on this because this is to me seems like a, a pain point for a lot of designers. They're like, Oh, well then the client comes back. And so, my friend Ian, Ian Padgett, he has a logo geek has a podcast and he yeah. really kind of like uh, honed in. He's like, when a client comes back, he says, well, this is what I think is the best answer. And this is why, and I'm an expert in this. This is what I've done. And that's just what I'm doing. So it's not letting them take you off your expert uh, chair because I think that they, um, they somehow are trying to see if they can knock us off. And one of the things in the book is about maybe they're not a good client. It's not a good fit. So send them to someone else. Correct? Yeah. Can you el elaborate a little bit more on why you think this is so hard and, and how people can change their mindset on not getting off of that kind of, because they knock us off our chair. Yeah. And first I'll shout out to Ian. I know him. I've been on his podcast. It's a great podcast. Logo. Um, you, you know, as a, we're not, we're not in the service business. Like, so I was taught we're in the service business. Therefore the customer is always right. And mm -hmm. that's not, you can't, you cannot view yourself being as in the service business. You should think very carefully before you, say the words to a client where you're showing options and say, you say the creative options different. Like let's say you're showing different logos or identities. You should think very carefully about using the words, which one do you like? Right. It's not that that's not important. It's actually quite important, but it's not you, 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 you should be the, you never give up the, the, the high ground. The most irresponsible thing you can do as a designer is to put like multiple concepts in front of a client and say, Oh, like which one do you like? Um, now, I'll, yeah, there is a bit of a caveat. There is, there is early on as kind of an exploration, as a, as a method to explore styles, et cetera, that's valid as part of your kind of your diagnostic approach. Um, but then I, I believe that anytime you put creative options in front of a client, you have an obligation to make a recommendation. You're abdicating your responsibility as the expert. And the client might decide, no, I, I really like this and, or want this other one. And that's fine. You should never put something in front of the client that you wouldn't be happy with them choosing. But your it doesn't matter what business you're in. Like when you're an outside expert, your job is to give people the confidence to move forward. Mm -hmm. I always say to like our coaches, we're in the empowerment business. Like it's just even our job is to get our clients, owners of creative firms to take action. And let's just let go of the need for that action to be exactly the right step. Like the, the universe rewards 
action. You take action, you take a step. There's very few decisions that you make in your life that have to be correct. Most of them are correctable rather than, they need to be correctable, not correct. Mm. So you, you see yourself as the expert facilitator. You have a recommendation. You put your options in front of your client. You explain your recommendations. You explain why it is your recommendation. And then you facilitate that discussion. You can't put options in front of the client and then take yourself out of the equation and say, well, it's personal preference. Preference, Which one do you like? And I think if you've got to learn to, to develop an opinion, then fake it. Like if you think all three are equally strong um, and the client says, well, which one do you think we should go with? You should have an answer to that question. You right. can't keep deferring to the client because they're hiring you for expertise. They're hiring you to give the con- them the confidence to move forward. And sometimes that means you have to, when the client kind of relegates you to the vendor position in the relationship, mm-hmm. you have to push back. You have to claim the higher ground. Um, so what re- would that look like in a, a what ahead. would that look like? Can we do a little role play and I'm the client and you're the uh, design firm? Okay. Sure. Okay. Um, so I, well, I, how do you, I, I'm not really sure, Blair, which logo I want um, could, uh, I think I like one more, but I think maybe I don't even see something I like here yet. Yeah, so I would explain, um, okay, I've got three different options, and here's why I've put these three different options in front of you. This one speaks more to the brand attribute of boldness or strength. This one also speaks to strength, but in a different way. We're using like photographic imagery or whatever, like I'm just riffing here, right? Versus an illustrative style. Uh, so this isn't, that's an issue of personal preference, those two. And if, if you've got a personal preference, great. If not, I'll share mine with you. But this third one is leveraging not the idea of strength, but the idea of history. And I think that's important. And if you want my opinion on which of these three is the most important one, I, I think I think we'll do better by leveraging history because of whatever reasons. So then what if somebody says, well, I'm going to go home and ask my wife what she says, and then I'll come back and give you the, or they give you, they're like, sure, let's go with history. And then they go home and they show it to other people. Is there anything about conversations at the beginning of this stage that says, Hey, let's have the decision makers in the room. Yeah, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. There's not a lot of detailed how-to in the book. It really is a yes-you-can <clears throat> book. Um, but when you're setting up a closing conversation, so we, and you recognize that the goal is to get the client to commit to something, you want to make sure that you have all the decision makers in the room. So you would ask in advance, all right, I'm going to share the options with you. Um, the goal is at the end of that meeting for you to pick one. Um, doesn't always happen, but that's the goal. Is there anybody's opinion or input that you would want um, before you make a decision? And if the client says, well, I like, you know, I'm probably going to want to write it past my wife. Then I would say, well, let's set up a time when we can do this, when your wife can be in the room or dial in via web meeting. Um, So that's just some nuance around that. You want to identify who needs to have a say and have them in the room. And one of the things I talk about in the book is it should be a policy in your firm that whenever your work is presented in the client company that you present it. Mm. So when this comes up, I want to run it past my wife. You could say, listen, I understand how, I understand how you're 
you know, personal preference. And I understand it sounds like you value her input on that. And I'm, I'm all for that. Our policy is whenever our work is presented in, in your organization, before it's finally approved, we're the ones who present it. So can we, why don't we schedule a time mm. for your wife to join us? And then I can facilitate the conversation b- between the three of us about what, you know, what she likes and why. Because if you came back to me and said she really likes this blue or doesn't like this blue, make it darker. Like that's not helpful to me. I'm going to have all kinds of questions beyond that. So but the I think- goal here is to arrive at the most powerful, most effective solution. And I do want to honor what you and your wife like, but I want it to be, I want us to be deeper than that. I want us to be more business oriented than that. I love that. So out of the, we're not client and <laughs> designer now, but it's, I love that it's taking it back to that goal. Well, the goal you stated in the beginning, because that's in that discovery. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that you're bringing it back to what they said, and this is how this is done. So I, I love that you're actually not afraid to have the wife come in. I love that you're putting it in early on. You're saying, hey, let's, we got to present it. Because again, so, t- so many times we get like flustered at this. And then, you know, the wife's like, well, I like purple. And the purple has nothing to do with any of the uh, the research that you've done or, or whatever. It's just about a personal preference, but we're not trying to get your wife to buy. We're trying to get, you know, all these other people that we've done this research on. And I think that it is really important to have the stakeholders in the room for sure. Agreed. So we are pretty much out of time. So somebody has their hand up and I'm not sure who it is. Um, Michael does. Um, Michael, do you want to ask a question? Somebody has this great line, don't make the client the art director. I absolutely agree. (laughs) Absolutely. But I think that that's where the power comes in. And you talk about that, about, um, you know, not not giving that power up. And it's the, I think that we end up giving them the, we we're like, oh, we can do this. Well, this is the position or, or we don't position ourselves to be the expert. So then we end up letting somebody else art direct and they don't have the, the experience. And if you, my dad said my first job was with this mean man. I'm not going to tell you what his name was, but he was a really tongue twister when I had to answer the phone. It's terrible. Anyway, he was mean. And my dad said, well, Diane, you need to either stand up to him or you need to get out. And I was like, you taught me not to, you know, you taught me to respect my elders. So it was really a a really struggle. And I felt like I had started the playing field really bad, actually. Just from the get-go, I didn't have that. I had already given him my power when I came in the first day. And so I ended up quitting. And so I'm really glad. And this is something I tell my students. I actually, my students call me Diane. Nobody calls me Miss Gibbs unless they're in trouble. I say, if you call me, if I start calling you by your last name, then you call me by my last name. And we know we got an issue, right? If I start calling you Mr. Inns, then we know we have a, a problem. But otherwise, I want, what happened in my second job was that I kept calling the so it was Ron and Michelle. Okay. So I called them. They were the, the 
they were the entrepreneurs, but then Ron's parents worked there. So it was Mr. Gerbrandt and Mrs. Gerbrandt, right? So I never could get past calling them by their first, I don't even remember what their first names were, to be honest, but they were always by, you know, it was like I was a little kid and I was buying cookies from them or something. And I couldn't get past that. And I tell my students, I was like, even though those kids are, I want them to they, I appreciate them being in the South and they're raised well and they have respect, but there's something that comes in as that you are always beneath. And I, I think that to some extent, maybe millennials are a little bit better at this because they think that they have something to add where maybe Gen Xers really had an issue with respect. I don't know. I'm kind of going off on your vacation mode. Sorry about that. But do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I think that you can start off in the wrong position from the get-go. And so I think that even them calling me Diane is a really good way for them to practice being at an equal level with their boss or a somewhat equal level to be able to give their opinion. Because one of the things I have designer friends that run companies around here and they'll be like, oh, Diane, they, your kids just don't speak up. You know, I know I've designed something really crappy and I've almost done it to see if they're going to, to call me out on it. And they don't, and they just don't want to hurt my feelings, but they also are hurting my growth because I know they know more than me, and that's why I've hired them. And I think that that's a really important part, but we automatically start in the wrong position, I think, even as a job. Because I think in one of the things I wrote, oh, wow, this could really be even in consideration of a job, I think you could use some of these techniques. Anyways. Yeah, I, you know, you think about the South, and I remember the 13-year-old boy in uh Somebody worked for me, he was in the South and we're visiting and he kept calling me, sir. And I said, man, if you, if you call me, sir, one more time, I said, you can call me dude. <clears throat> and I appreciate there's something that's really sweet and polite about it in the South. But I, w I wonder, if, is it politeness <clears throat> or is it oppression? Um, is it the preservation of a class society? I don't, I don't like, and you know, so... I don't know. I had to call my moms here. So I had to call them. I probably still am supposed to call them ma'am and sir. So I say, yes, sir. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. Right. Yeah. I, I don't, I think it was a level of respect. I don't think it was oppression, but I think that it, the way maybe parents do it, but I think it's different when it, when an adult asks you not to do it, it can't just be um, habit you have to be thinking, oh, I respect you. That's why I'm saying yes, sir. So it's become, it's like the people at Chick-fil-A. I mean, I love Chick-fil-A, but I cannot stand my pleasure, my pleasure. I think I want to hit the people saying my pleasure because it doesn't seem sincere. And I think that's what you're talking about. It now becomes a habit. And so respect is out the door. So now it's just a habitual thing. I've been taught to say yes, sir. And they're doing it out of respect because I think they respect you. But you're yeah. saying, hey, I respect you and I'm not going to say yes, sir, to you. So let's just be on that same playing field kind of, I don't know, that maybe that's... Yeah, and if you're unsure about how to address somebody and you're, you're, you're listening to this and thinking, just ask, just say, is it okay if I call you Dave instead of Mr. Thomas? Um, just... <laughs> Just ask. From Wendy's? I'm just kidding. Yeah, Dave, Dave Thomas from Wendy's. Yeah. I, as soon as I said that, I thought, wow, where did that come from? I don't remember what the Truett Kathy, I think, is a Chick-fil-A guy. Um, but, but I do. I think that there is something about sincerity 
And I just think we need to be sincere. And I think to some extent it is oppression. I think that there are ways that it's- And these are often so, they're conversations that are so hard. It's like, I'm a designer. I didn't sign up for having these crucial, difficult conversations. But your success in life is going to be tied to your ability to have those difficult conversations. Like I just, I could just, I'm really like, I'm seeing all these faces in my mind of the most successful people I know. They're just able to have the adult conversations. They're able to say politely what others will not say. Mm. And they're able to ask questions, I think. You know, when they don't understand, they're not afraid of looking like a fool or they they don't think of it like that. I just don't know. And I want to know this sincerely. Could you please teach me or could you please tell me? And they haven't been rejected. And I think there's some way we have... We feel like we, if we ask, and maybe it's because most of us are introverts and we just don't put ourselves out there like that. But I think the more you do it, just like a marathon runner, you can't, I can't just be like, all right, Blair, after this interview, I'm going to go run a marathon. Like I haven't trained for a marathon. I probably can't run a 5k, but you know what I mean? Like you have to train for it. So you can't expect to go out the first tomorrow. I'm going to do the win without pitching. It's, it's practice and it's, it's continuous and you got to have, I love this book because it is such a, it's like a, it's like, I've got it. I've got the confidence. It's like carry it in your backpack, go to the bathroom and read a little bit before you go into your thing and then practice. And if you fail, it's okay. Go the next time, try again. And I think you're going to get your own way of saying however you're going to say when the guy asked for his wife to come in or, or the woman asked for whoever to come in and be part of the conversation. But I think a lot of it has to do with confidence. And I think that's one of your strengths because I don't think that you're cocky. I think you come off as confident, but you come off as very concerned for us and that this is, um, you would do this even if, um, Thank goodness you found a way to make money, right? Because you have four kids and, and, but, but I don't think that money was the driver. I, maybe it was, but it sounds like this was something you had to change this industry. And I, I just so commend you for taking that first stab. And I, uh, anything I can do to help you, I totally, not that I'm just this little person, but I'm so thankful. And you and I talked about, um, Donald Miller. And I was like, Oh, you should totally team up with him. Not that I know him either, but I love his stuff. And it just seems like maybe that he would love designers more if, (laughs) if y'all could team up. But anyway, thank you for being on here. So yeah, my pleasure, Diane, I've really enjoyed the conversation and and good luck to all your students. Um, It's a great, wonderful world out there. If I get the last parting piece of advice that please, I've noticed recently that people kind of my kids age, early twenties, that they're coming out of school, they're going, um, that they're facing the big decisions in life. I'm really struck by how they, how much pressure they feel to get those big decisions right about, Mm. you know, what am I going to do for a career? What will I study in school? What will I do for a career? Um, all of these big decisions. And I, I'm really struck by how they're big decisions, but I'm struck by how they're, they how much pressure they feel to get them right. And the answer is you don't have to get it right. You just say yes to something. The path will illuminate itself. Just keep saying the decision that you're facing that you, that's keeping you up at night, that's immobilizing you. It's not, you don't have to make the correct decision. Just make a decision, move forward. It's not the right one. Change it later. It's not. So I would just say to people of that generation, just let go of the pressure you feel to make 
exactly the right decision, like your entire life depends on it. It really doesn't. Right. They just need to play the field a little bit. My mom always said not to, she never wanted us to be real serious with any of the boys we dated. And I actually am very thankful that we, that sounds terrible, but we played the field. I wasn't playing the field in a bad way, but you know, I dated a lot of people. So I think that there's something about that. We just need to try to see what really fits for us. And I think sometimes we just have to keep trying. I'm very thankful that I found design when I was 19. But I'm also, uh, I know some people haven't found it and they're in their 40s or they're in their 50s or they find it in their 60s. But man, that time is so energizing and engaging and we just have to keep trying to get better every day. And I think that that's the, the best part of being alive and and I'm super thankful to be a creative, but I'm super thankful for your book and you have another one coming out sometime. We're not giving a date out because it puts too much pressure, but it, it's about pricing, right? It's out. It's been out a year. Oh, it's out already? The price, the green one? Pricing creativity. Empty. Pricing it's, creativity. So it's a guide to profit beyond the billable hour. All right. Well, I didn't have that book on my thing, but we do have. So I'll come back and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about pricing. I want to do that, but not in a year. So since I was wrong on my time, I'm so sorry. Okay. So winwithoutpitching.com. And there's also training. So people like Jeremy who have offices and people, he does training sessions. What does a training session look like? Could people come to you or do you do them all over, I think? Right. Or our next public workshop is in Chicago. It's April 15th and 16th. So it's a little less than two weeks away. There's still eight spots left. There's 60 people still eight spots left. So there's information on that on winwithoutpitching.com. We do private training in various forms as well. You can just reach out to us via the website. Um, And then there's also pricingcreativity.com. And this is, this is how you've been able to focus Go deep, but not necessarily narrow because you are able to reach a whole bunch of different kinds of creatives. So I'm, I'm just thankful. I, I really do think it is revolutionary and I'm super thankful that you gave Susanna Licko uh, a little plug in the back. I knew when I saw that people look at this, this to me was the best that he um, gave her credit for Mrs. Eve's uh, Baskerville's lover, um, uh, giving them, I just love that typeface too. I think Baskerville is such a great typeface. Anyway, we could just go on and on. But even this is in Baskerville, I mean, in um, Mrs. Eve's too, and it has such a great ligature. Yeah. And so the designer is, I, is a, I've worked with a lot of designers, obviously. And the reason I chose this designer is his second career is he designs typefaces for Bibles. And I wanted this to be all about the words. Um, yeah. And a good typeface works that we forget about what we're re- the typeface looks like and we just are reading. It's the background music at the Monet exhibit that we can experience the Monet exhibit. If it was Metallica at the Monet exhibit, we not, might not be able to experience it the same way. So I just want to make sure you do. Uh, there is an Instagram. I believe it is Win Without Pinching. That's y'all, right? Yeah, I, so the person who runs it isn't with us anymore. It's all being transitioned over to a new team. I as a, I, I'm not on Facebook or Instagram, so I know we're there in some way. People tell me. 
<laughs> so we'll have you back on and I'm really excited. I can't wait. I hope you guys, you, you do speak at conferences. You go all over the world talking about this, but win without pitching has been, it is evergreen for sure. There is not anything in here that is so specific to a, um, except it's just people communicating. And unfortunately, a lot of designers and a lot of creatives have some of these same problems and we can't get over them. So I hope this really helps y'all to get through some of those struggles of the stuff that we deal with. So just so you know, next week, no show. We're at Creative South and hopefully you guys will be there too. And you can always follow me at Design Recharge on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook. And then we will see a bunch of you there. Jeremy's bringing his son. Amy's coming. Tons of people. I'm really excited. Andre from Portugal. One time you'll have to come. And Blair, man, you should come. I'm going to plop your name in that hat next year. I'd love it, to, yeah. It would be incredible. I just think you would give so many people hope. And that's really what Design Recharge is about. It's about hope and that somebody else did it. And we're giving you good examples of how, how to get through. So Matt, I hope this helped you. I can't wait to see what you do next. And we will see you guys next time. And you can always catch the, it, uh, catch the episode at rechargingyou.com slash 293. Thanks, Blair. Thanks, Diane. Hey, I just wanted to tell you about a couple ways you can support the channel, the show, and the podcast. One, you can get extra content delivered to you to patrons only by going to patreon.com slash Diane Gibbs. And then my favorite way to build websites has changed a little bit recently. Um, I am now using the Elementor plugin with the Divi theme. The Elementor plugin works with almost any theme. It makes almost any theme invincible. This plugin has changed the way that I've been able to design websites. It was allowing me to work at such a faster speed where other plugins fell short. Now I don't need that. I just need Elementor. You go to bit.ly, bit.ly slash dr elementor my favorite theme of course which i've told you about before is the divi theme it gives you complete control i purchased the lifetime plan which was 250 dollars. i believe that's the same price it is now and you can for the lifetime you never have to pay a renewal fee every year which it's about i think 80 dollars. it is a based off of a grid system and now i need one theme and i can do custom sites and it allows me to use strategy and customize for their needs instead of trying to adjust a theme that already exists and the last thing that i love that i use every day is audible audible has changed my business and has changed my life i listen to more books than i physically read nowadays i listen when i work out when i mow when i have a long commute these are all affiliate links that means if you click on the link and purchase an item i will receive an affiliate commission so that's it those are ways to support the show thanks